you've promised that you will have enough money to pay players without fans, then that's what you should do. But the reason why they lost that game is because of Alisson. It's as simple as that. I can't imagine what Mitrovic sounds like, to be honest. That is not a red card. Keep him on the pitch. <laughs> He's French now, is he? <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Rematch podcast. I'm Sam and I'm joined by Ollie, Cam, Adam and Dan. Coming up on today's podcast, after Thomas Sojcek's ridiculous red card at the weekend, we discuss referees. Is VAR showing a clear and obvious poor state of officiating? And what more can we do to heighten the standard of refereeing in this country? Hopefully, none of us will be getting cold feet when we dissect Alison Blunderland. And should we hand the title over to the citizens already? Also, we come up with rematches answer to how the National League should be concluded. Well, someone's got to do their job for them. Has anyone else finished TV? I mean, I genuinely think I've watched everything there is on at the moment. The <laughs> highlight of my day at the moment is watching Winter Watch on an evening. <laughs> or Spring Watch. Well, what, what does that mean? Though? What, do you, what do you actually watch? Can you just look out a window? Do you know what I mean? What's with the watch? Well, it's like the life cycle of... A salmon and things a like salmon. that. A salmon? Yeah. We have like updates on what's happening on the River Ness. What does it show it like, as in like it's born, it swims about and then it ends up like with my peppercorn sauce or whatever we have with salmon? No, it swims like halfway across the Atlantic Ocean peppercorn and comes sauce. back. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'll give it a watch. Um, I think you should, mate. Yeah. Uh, uh, watch- Who else is watching WandaVision? Yeah. That's it. Let's keep me going. Well. All, all, this t- all the TV start to start up again now. I feel like oh, me yeah. and Adam are probably in the same boat here where we just keep watching the same stuff over and over again. <laughs> Don't try any new stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Line of Duty's out next month, though. Oh, I'm guessing. I like that. Oh, Adam, we're going to get you into a series. We have to. I do, I do watch series. Oh, you've watched Line of Duty, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, think, no, I think Adam should start Line of Duty. I think he should start Game of Thrones. I think he'd enjoy I'm not that. watching Game of Thrones. Fine, dragons in no, you like, like things that are unrealistic, do you? I was going to say, he'd be like, oh, well, what's that dragon doing there? Do you it's know unrealistic. I mean? And <laughs> flying dragons. I mean, come on. What else is unrealistic? Adam, have you ever watched Naughty America? No. That's, that's quite a good... It's, it's realistic and it's quite a good love story. I think, <laughs> I think you might try. Right. might yeah. find quite interesting. I think, I, I, think I'm, I'm, I might have to guess what that is, Ollie, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> No, I honestly think you should give Lana Duty a go. I think no, so if uh, not America, I think it's it's like a documentary on Trump's reign in charge, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I'm, cer- I'm certainly not googling it. I definitely uh, wouldn't want to see. Listening to us. I definitely wouldn't want to see Donald Trump on Naughty you'll, America. You'll you'll definitely be playing your ukulele after that. <laughs> so if, yeah, when we was in the house, um, we always used to like watch your naked attraction, didn't we, Adam? Right, I mean, there's ways of wording things like that, Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that naked attraction was the sort of thing that we'd put on after we've watched the football. It's like half past ten, and we think, should we watch something? And then we just scroll through what's on, in, and we'd get as far as Channel 4, the third option down, and we're like, oh, well, we'll stick that on for half an hour. Seriously, the people who go on that, why? So just just what, what makes them go on that? They must get paid a lot of money, do you know what I mean? I think they've missed a trick. They should have called it, who wants to see a willy on air? <laughs> yeah, but, uh. and... And who, uh, who, t- who, sorry, where did you get that from? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was in Lee Mack's autobiography, but I can't quite remember. Well, I've heard that somewhere in the last week as well, but I can't remember where I heard it. Of, so. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not yours, is what I'm saying.
Right, boys, Thomas Soytrex, red card on Saturday night. I'm not sure I've seen a decision where everyone has sided together to say the referee has got that one wrong. Normally you get at least one or two who side with the official, but I don't think I've seen one person say that was a red card. I mean, two top flight officials, Lee Mason and Mike Dean, have had a look at it and somehow decided between them it's a red. I mean, it's honestly baffling, isn't it? No joke, I honestly thought that was one of the worst decisions I've ever seen, especially when you take into the fact that two... Premier League standard referees have supposedly looked at that and decided it is a red. I think I remember hearing on Sky Sports News after, afterwards that Lee Mason said something about a clenched fist, which I don't really know where he's plucked that from when Suchik's fist doesn't even go anywhere near. I think it's Mitrovic who, who went down on the floor. But I think it goes back to what we've spoken about before, about punishments with referees. Something really needs to happen, especially after this one, because they can't keep getting away with it. I suppose the lucky thing for them was that this was in the last minute. Who knows what could have happened if it was halfway through the game. It could have made a real impact, but it didn't. Did Mitrovic make a bit of a meal of it, though? I think he did initially, but then he got back up to his feet straight after and talked to Mike Dean. And I think everyone, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he was saying, it's not a red card, Mike. I was just, I don't think Mike. Mike. <laughs> it's not a red card. <laughs> it's not a red card. I've gone down because I felt contact in my face. But I don't think Imagine it was a getting up and going, hey Dino, no, you've got that one wrong, mate. <laughs> I can't imagine what Mitrovic sounds like, to be honest. I, I, honestly, I reckon he sounds like he's, he's just like the big bad in every movie, isn't he? I didn't yeah. know the red card. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, so, again, Ollie. That is not a red card. Keep him on the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> so he's French now, is he? Well, he was acting when he went down on the floor, so he was acting when he got back up. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, though, that, that, that it's part of the problem, isn't it, at the minute, with um, like a bit of play acting. It's, it's, getting, it's getting people in trouble, and I think what, what goes around comes around with things like that. Mitrovic is obviously quite an aggressive player himself. That's just the way he plays. Sometimes there's nothing wrong with that, but it's going to kind of come out of bite him in the bum doing stuff like that, flying, fling himself to the floor, because... At the end of the day, if he goes in aggressively to a tackle and someone goes flying over and gets him sent off, he'll be absolutely livid with it, won't he? I suppose there's an element of that, but then there's still the referees and two top flight officials have gone over and had a look at the monitor and still agreed that it's a red card. Surely that's where the main issue lies. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the fact that, like we said, like we said all these officials, <laughs> there's about 30 or something now, isn't there? It's like ridiculous how many there is. And there's just nothing going on in terms of the making correct decisions. Why, why, why can they not come to that? Decision? I mean, I'm sure we're all in agreement here. It's just absolutely atrocious. And I know you're going to come on to it, but he's probably right to get the two. Is it two game bad or just a? a um, I think they've just asked uh, that he doesn't referee this weekend. Doesn't referee I think this is weekend. what I've seen today on Sky right. Sports, but that might be wrong. I, I mean, more... it's it's two in one week though, isn't it? Because there was the Jan Bednarek incident that also involved uh, Mike Dean as well. Yeah, but I think Mike Dean's come out today, hasn't he? And he said that he's received personal threats to his family, even even death threats, because of because of football decisions. I mean, that's where it becomes too far. I think the only reason why he's been taken off the game mm-hmm. is for his own safety, in a way. I think he's asked himself, I think he said, can I not officiate this weekend? And I think we're kind of seeing both sides of, both extremes almost of the argument, because... Whilst it should never come down to personal abuse, particularly to that sort of extent, equally, he wouldn't be getting this sort of abuse if he didn't make such horrific decisions, which I'm not entirely blaming him, because I think when he went to VAR, something that he didn't see in the first place, even though he was right in front of it and looking at it, Lee Mason said, I think you should check this, Mike. 
and um, and obviously Mike Dean, I think if you can sort of, you can sort of lip read him when he came back, he said to Martin Noble as he was passing, "I've got to send him off." Almost as if he didn't really want to, as if he as if he knew instinctively it wasn't the right thing to do, but he felt that the rules and the whole clenched fist argument. I don't think that was contact with the fist. I just think it means if you've got clenched fist, it's almost if that elbow is deliberate because you're trying to put some some force behind it. But I think realistic, realistically, we all know that's completely untrue. But we do need to find some sort of solution where where referees, quite simply, can't make one huge mistake, let alone make two huge mistakes in the same week. We talk about it being accountable there. Is the media scrutiny that referees get once they've had such a catastrophic error, is that enough then? I don't think so, because this is literally their job. They paid, they paid quite a lot of money to get these decisions right, and they just seem to be getting away with it every time. Not just getting away with it, they're getting protected every time. If it, it was another profession, so Dan at Aldi, if he was kicking people out of the shop for no reason, I do. he'd probably get sacked. <laughs> he'd probably get sacked eventually. I'm not saying that Mike Dean should be sacked, but some punishment should happen or else it'll just keep happening and we'll be having the same debate every week. I knew this was coming up, so I had a bit of time to think about what I thought and some accountability might be towards referees. And this is quite a radical suggestion, so it might take some time to explain. But what about if referees were ranked after a game, score one to 10 by a manager, and then put into a league table where the bottom three, like the Premier League, would be relegated to the championship and the top would be given some sort of award for fair refereeing? Does that seem sort of no, something that would work? It's over, isn't it? I don't know if you find that more interesting than the current league table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to be fair, you would, you would but it doesn't... In reality, it doesn't work because you get a manager like like Neil Warnock, he's going to rate the referee two out of ten every week. He hits, he hits every 23 game, he's absolutely livid with the referee. It, it, it's one of them where it all comes down to opinion a little bit because there is no, it's not like an onside, offside with fouls, is it? It's like that decision is set in stone, whatever, that's offside, that's onside now. But when it comes to a foul, that comes, that's subjective. So therefore, it's 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 too hard to to judge a referee based on a decision in terms of a score, and that's how it gets demoted. But I think the the top referees, I believe, are at the top. I just don't think there's good enough quality of referees in general in England. And I think there's a massive problem, and hopefully they're trying to fix it soon because by the time it all comes round, it could be ten years by the time referees we're seeing the top referees getting trained up and making the way up. And it might be the, the game's completely gone by then, nearly, isn't it? Well, maybe rather than the managers making these decisions, what does the referee's assessor do? Because you see quite often, that even at all, well, across all levels of the game, you'll see someone with a big FA tracksuit coming up and taking notes of the referee. These notes never get published. We never hear if they're ever used. If they're ever, if these referees are held to account for decisions that the assessor, who's normally a established name in the in the industry. Even even at the sort of bottom levels, I remember going to a Knotts game a few years ago, and I, and, I, and I saw Alan Wiley stood outside, and I, and I, I thought, I, I know that is why is why is he here? And I came to me, oh, it's Alan Wiley, and he was doing the the assessing that game. But but you never see what these what's said in these notes that these people take, and if they're clearly not having any impact on the referee, so perhaps we should just make those jobs seem a bit more important, and perhaps even publish what those notes are rather than making it almost like a sort of competition aspect with the league table. Otherwise, you'll get refs who clearly embrace 
being in charge, which I would normally say is is Mike Dean. He you know he loves a red card, and that's not to say that the red cards he gives are not the correct decision. But you can just tell with the sort of flamboyance that he points at the spot and the and the way he shows the red card, and you just think he no he he loves doing that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you but these refs would probably end up higher in these league table than the, than other refs purely based on the fact that they're just giving more decisions if that makes sense it's obvious what kind of feedback they get it'll be like what we got in uni where you, you barely get anything you don't really know how to improve you'll go in and they'll say oh you've done that and then they'll go oh yeah i probably shouldn't have done that and then they say okay well just don't do it again sort of thing it it doesn't feel like it's getting punished enough if we even got that at you sometimes you know what I mean? it was probably worse than that one it? but um yeah so I just think that it probably needs stamping down a little bit more but then like like I said earlier I, I just don't you can demote Mike Dean or you can demote all these referees that are making bad decisions but the people who come up are making terrible decisions as well it's just this overall standard of refereeing that's poor I think related to Adam's point about the way that Mike Dean acts himself. I think he even said on the Peter Crouch podcast, when he steps onto that pitch, he sees himself as a bit of a character and he puts on a bit of a performance, which for me, he shouldn't be doing. And I don't get why referees can go on podcasts, but they can't come out and speak after a game. I know we've discussed that a couple of weeks ago, but it's something that should happen. They should come out and explain why they, why they have made these decisions because we're left in the blue. Like I, I just can't understand why Suchet was sent off and we'll never actually find out now. I agreed with that the other week, though. You know, um, I, I said they should come out after the game and things like that. But do you think that if they came out and they tried to defend what they did and not apologise, say Mike Dean came out and he said, no, that's a red card, he's done this, he pro- would he get the same amount of abuse? I think he, he probably could, he could get even more abuse because if he says something and he tries to make a joke of it, then the fans all get annoyed. And then that, there's the backlash from that. It is difficult to bring them out into the spotlight because that's making them into more of a celebrity than what they already are. Yeah, but it stops it stops the speculation though, doesn't it, Dan? Because yeah. we're sitting here saying we don't know why he's sent him off. If he came out and said, "Oh, he's his fist is clenched," I think his intent is to, to elbow him in the face. Then, then at least we can go right. Well, in our opinion, does it look like that? Can we see what the refs see? And whereas at the minute we're going, has he just sent him off because he's elbowed? He's caught him in the face. Is it because of his clenched fist? You know. Has he seen something else? We don't know. It, I think it would definitely clear clear some things up. It probably wouldn't clear everything up and it probably wouldn't stop him getting abused, no. But what would stop him getting abused, unfortunately? I'm, I'm not quite sure I agree with the process of a referee coming out for an interview after the game, potentially because I think it would only ever be called upon if the referee's had a blunder and therefore he has to have an interview because he's made a mistake. I mean, if you had a referee's interview every week, then potentially that would be a bit more fair on them. But I think to just have it just because they've made a mistake, I don't think that is quite fair. And if, say, Mike Dean doesn't have that blunder and it's Fulham nil, West Ham nil, and the referee has to come out and have an interview because, I don't know, he's given a yellow card to Scott Parker on the touchline for talking, why does he have to explain that decision more than the uh, soy check? Red card. I, I just don't think that's fair on the referee. Maybe a statement might be quite good. Just, just after the game, if say that say the games on on Sky, for example, they can get a statement from Mike Dean directly that says, "I sent him off because I thought there was a clenched fist." Simple as that. He doesn't have to come up for an interview or anything. There's just a little statement just to explain because obviously he explains to the players that they, they do say something. Like they, they must have to explain to him because otherwise it wouldn't make sense. And obviously they explain to the managers at the end when they go over to them and speak about it. So why can't the fans see that? When did that I, clenched I, fist thing? Missing, missing that. 
I don't know. I, I, because I, that was I, leaked I, from Stockley I, Park. Well, Stockley Park said that it was a clenched fist. Who's who said that? Who's then leaked that, essentially? Who's giving that information out? And why aren't they giving more information out? Or why were they wrong in giving that information out, if you know what I mean? I actually just thought of a Mark Dean an example. Um, I can remember he refereed a Steel City derby at Hillsborough, and he'd already sent uh, Phil Jagielka off. This is like 2008 for a high foot. And in the second half, we substituted off Jermaine Johnson about 60 minutes in. And he wasn't very happy. And Jermaine Johnson booted a water bottle across our bench, over the top of the Sheffield United bench, into the crowd. The fourth official saw it. Johnson went down the tunnel. And then about five minutes later, Mike Dean got told. And he made Jermaine Johnson come out in just like a vest and shorts, just to send him, give him a straight red card, rather than oh, just doing it in the that. privacy zone dressing room. It, it was, it, it was, I don't think it had ever been or it'd been very rarely seen where a player had been gone into the dressing room and then had to come back out to be showing a red card. It was absolutely ridiculous, I remember, at the time. Don't get me wrong, it should have been a red. I'm not saying that, but to have the arrogance to make the player come out and he just stands at the tunnel just so 39,000 people can go and see that he's sent a player off and not just do it, you know, not just give him the ban after the game. It just shows the type of person I think that Mike Dean is. The red half of Manchester gasping breath after a last-minute equaliser from Dominic Calvert-Lewin, the door was open for Manchester City to go five points clear at the top of the Premier League table and ten points ahead of last season's champions, Liverpool, if they could beat the Reds on their own patch, something they hadn't managed in 18 years. A resounding 4-1 win was to follow, but they received more than a helping hand from Alisson, didn't they? Ollie, do you want to talk about it? <laughs> you know... You know what? I'm not. I'm not actually. I don't know. I don't know what the word is. Absolutely gutted. Don't even dare. I just didn't really expect anything though. Like I, I remember Adam putting something in the chat in the first half about it being what was it West Brom Fulham. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like that the first half, and I didn't really expect anything more from the second half. But we just obviously there's the mistakes from Allison, but we got absolutely torn apart by Phil Foden. It was literally like there was four Phil Fodens on the pitch. He was doing Robertson at one side and at the other. I just, I just, I just, I just, yeah, I just can't explain it. And then with the Allison mistakes, they're just amateurish. I'm not, I don't want to blame him too much because obviously, I don't think we'd be where we are without him and some of the the saves he's made for us in the past couple of years. But especially after the first one, I don't get why he's not just mashed the ball into Rose Z. It's it's just really depressing <laughs> to talk about in the minute. But I mean, realistically, I think, and this this might sound a bit harsh. I don't think you had a defender on the pitch that game. I really don't. I don't see Trent as a good defender. I don't see Robertson. Robertson's okay, but he's again. I think both wing backs. They're they're attacking players. You need against teams like Man City. You need a defence, and just, Liverpool just don't have it. I mean, Fabinho and Henderson centre back again. You've got centre backs now. I don't think there's much of an excuse as not as to not playing them. They've been playing football. It's not like they're unfit. I don't understand what's going on as to why you can't do that. They're obviously relying heavily on Allison, and that's where the mistakes come from because I get that Liverpool play from the back just as many teams do now, but it, I just don't... I think there was too much pressure on Allison that game, I, I, and that's why the mistakes happened. But Trent should be stopping Sterling coming inside, and from the other side, there was, there was kind of no defence on the other side at some point as well, and it was just... 
it was really poor from Liverpool defensively, and it's it's all got a pot. I can understand why he played Henderson for the you know at centre half. But if you if you look at the options, obviously with with Kabak or even Ben Davis, I don't think either of them would have done any better. Simply, or at least I don't think it would have helped situation because all right, you would have had Fabinho and slash or Henderson in midfield, which would have improved the midfield. I think the defence would have been much weaker, not because they're worst worst players playing the back, because they're probably not. But if you look at Kabak, I'm not sure where his understanding of English is. And communication is very important, especially with a a pretty multicultural side like Liverpool. Um, I don't know how many players in that team could speak Turkish or German. And, and then if you look at Ben Davis, yeah, of course, there's no excuse for Ben Davis. However, he's a player that's never played top flight football unless unless he did at a very young age, which I don't I can't imagine he would have done. So to throw him in against Manchester City could have absolutely broken him as he's still relatively young at 25. So I couldn't understand why Klopp might have wanted to play Henderson and Fabinho at centre half. The problem is is that I think if Kabak had been in at the start of the window, he should he would if he'd not played him after having a month, having time to at least learn basic communication with Allison and with Fabinho or Henderson, whoever was going to fill in there and the fullbacks, then he would have had absolutely no choice and should have... It, it, I think it shows but, but, a lack of planning, surely, really. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, you talk communication there. Mm-hmm. like, And I understand yeah. what you mean in, in the long term. But, I mean, surely mm-hmm. the only communication you need as, as a foreign defender coming in is, oh, stop the tackle, clear the ball. You know the communication of football. Yeah, you know when, the language of football. But oh. when you're tracking runners like Man City, like if you've got a false nine and Phil, it's not like you're playing against a big number nine where you can stick somewhat, you can stay behind him and basically stay touch tight to him for the whole game. He's not going to move him behind too much. Foden was all over. Like like Ollie said, he was running the channels. He was getting at Trent and uh, Andy Robertson. You know, it wasn't just a stationary number nine. It wasn't even like an Aguero where you were just going to expect him to be nipping in behind, occasionally coming in short to lay off a pass. I think I can I can completely understand why Klopp didn't feel comfortable. Obviously, it's not worked anyway. Regardless, if he got a result, then I think you say it was obviously a great decision. But they've conceded four goals. Um, you know, I, I can. But the reason, the thing is, I can understand why he's not played him. What I can't defend is the fact that he's not had them in at the start of the season. Never mind, got them in at the start of January. I think that's that's really cost Liverpool. I certainly don't disagree with that, but for me, the game was one all when Alisson made his first of two incredibly huge mistakes. I think that, yes, the defence, as mm-hmm. as qualities of defenders, are perhaps not as strong as you'd expect from Liverpool, especially when they've got, now they've got options to put in the middle of the back four that are actually defenders. But the reason why they lost mm-hmm. that game is because of Alisson. It's as simple as that. And I, that's not to say that he's yeah. won Liverpool points in the past, because he definitely has, and he's definitely a good goalkeeper. But for whatever reason, according to Martin Tyler, it's because he was cold. But for for, for whatever reason, oh, he has <laughs> for whatever reason he has lost Liverpool <laughs> that game. And I just I can't understand that way of playing to that extent. I understand playing for the back, of course I do. I'm not saying play long ball and go four four two and you know like good old fashioned British football. That's not that's not what I'm trying to argue. But what 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 I don't understand is when anybody in the back four has it. And, the, and there's not a forward pass. If you go back to the goalkeeper, you're saying two things. You're saying, first of all, the goalkeeper can't go back anymore, otherwise he's going to either consider a corner or a goal. So you can't, you can't go backwards any more than that. 
And secondly, what you're saying is you kick it, and for that reason, because you can't go back anymore, what you're saying to the goalkeeper is you kick it forwards because I don't want to. Now, that to me is just, you shouldn't be reliant on a goalkeeper whose primary job is to stop goals going in. You shouldn't be, as a defender, going back to the goalkeeper and saying, you, you kick it forward because I don't want to or because I can't. The person who's got the ball should always be more capable than the goalkeeper of kicking it forwards. So it's just the insistence of playing uh, back yeah. and trying to mm-hmm. work that space again and again and again. And even more so when you've done it and it's gone wrong. And then you do it again. And I said, yeah, again, he had a bit of time and space and he's just kicked the ball to Foden. I'm, I understand that and it is Alisson's fault. But why are you giving him the ball? Are you completely against playing from the back then, Adam? Completely? Or are you like in the, in the middle? Do you know what I mean? Because I, I, I'll tell you my point of view on it, sorry. But like, I, I think that it does have a place for the, for the bigger teams, like, like your Man City's and your Liverpool's. They've played, off, played from the back these past few seasons and they've absolutely dominated. Because that's how they spring their counter-attacks. That's how they build up their play. They play out wide and they build from there because they suck the teams in and then open them up. Whereas if you play it long, then they're all compact, the opposition. And teams like Burnley and stuff like that, they're going to win the ball against you. Do you know what I mean? And then you've lost possession of the ball. But I can see what you mean because if it goes wrong once, you surely don't do it again. That, that's when it goes stupid. I was, I was just going to quickly say two issues that I've got with it is that it's not necessarily... The- the fact that he's received the ball, it's what he's done when he's received the ball. He's looked very lethargic. He's, he's basically looked like the opposite of what we've seen Allison. You know, he's known for being this ball-playing goalkeeper, the sweeper-keeper, if you like. And he looks like... Because he had one, obviously, earlier where he took a touch and then took a heavy touch and nearly gave it to City when he was on the edge of his own 18-yard box. And I can't remember who it was. I think it was Fabinho that cleared it, cleared up the pitch. From that moment, I thought, he's not looking as sharp as what he normally does. And, and whether that is down to that illness that he's had or he's currently going for, I, d- I don't know. But what the big issue was that he just didn't move the ball quick enough. He didn't get it out, his, or he got it out his feet, but then didn't seem to make a decision, just seemed to look and go, well, I haven't got anything on. At that point, if he hasn't got anything on, he knows that, yeah, he needs to clear his lines. But for me, as a team, if I'm, think, if I'm playing for a team that's you know playing out from the back, I don't go back the way where City have just pressed for because City had just penned for, I can't remember which goal it was but they just penned Liverpool in on the I think it was the third one uh, towards the corner flag and he'd received the ball not under much pressure obviously and he's turned sort of to face the centre the, the centre of the pitch so he can go either side yet he's decided to go back left when he could when he's got all the right side of the pitch and yeah there might not be anyone on but Going back to what I was saying, if there's no clear pass on, which I don't think there was, back to his left-hand side, he's got to then dink it into the right channel. He's got to dink it over to the um, to either the striker or the right winger or the right back, whichever's in whichever is most likely to win the ball, because then at least then City aren't going to catch you when they've already pressed into a certain area. Because at the minute you've got six, seven players all in one area. Three or four of them are City players. The last thing you want to do is then risk playing the ball back into that compressed area because then you're making it a 3v3 or a 4v3 or a 3v4 and the, you know, and you really don't want to do that. What you want to do is you want to make it, at worst, a 1v1 over the other side of the pitch where, let's say, both players go up for the header and the City player wins it. Then there's not there's those three City players that are pressed. They're maybe not in their position. They're over the far side of the pitch. One of them's a centre midfielder. He's not in the centre of the pitch, so therefore you should have at least 
a one-on-one advantage or one a 50-50 challenge in the middle. If not, because they've pressed out to the right, in the centre there should be a bit more space for your central midfielders that are left over. That's the issue that I've got with it, is that he's not moved it quick enough. And when he has moved it and played the pass, he's kicked it the wrong way, in my opinion. And that's just how I saw it as a football manager. Goalkeeper, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I was looking at more as a goalkeeper, really. Obviously, I'm not known for my uh, playing out of the back abilities, but um, that's person that's personally what I would have done as a pretty average Sunday league goalkeeper. No, I can I completely, I completely agree with you there, Cameron, because for me, I just think at, at all levels of the game, even not not just especially at the top level, I just think players have got to use a bit of common sense because so often you'll see managers have drilled in a tactic and a way of playing whether it's you play it along into the channels, whether it's try and play off the second balls, whether it's play it completely out from the back, it's mm-hmm. drilled into these players. And sometimes they'll get the ball and think, got to play it short, got to play it short. That's not always the best option. There's nothing wrong with playing it long here and there, which is why it confused me a little bit with Liverpool because last year they were a little bit more direct. And I don't know why the reason is why they don't seem to be wanting to do that anymore. Now we get the ball out wide. And yesterday it happened countless times. We'd get the ball in the final third and in four passes at the back of the goalkeeper. Just put it in the mm-hmm. box and see what happens. Just have a go. But for me, the, the biggest thing, Dan, right, right at the start of this, of this conversation on Liverpool, you said about the back four not being the strongest defence. And you're saying Trent Alexander-Arnold, you think, is perhaps not, in those sorts of games, the best choice for a right-back. He's much better going forward. And he's not doing his primary job at a right-back against Man City of defending. It's, for me, it's exactly the same with Alisson. And this sort of fascination about keepers playing it out from the back, their first job has, has always been and will always be to stop the ball going in the back of the net. That's what they've got to do. And yeah, if they've got good, neat, neat footwork and they can ping a pass left and right, brilliant. But if they can't, it shouldn't matter. I can't understand why he gets so much defence almost for this because oh, he's trying to, they're trying to play it out from the back, they're trying to play the right thing. No, he's, he's booted the ball to Man City twice as a goalkeeper. Why? Why, why is he even attempting to do that as a goalkeeper? Do you then not have to give Man City credit for occupying those spaces and pressing high and winning the ball absolutely and forcing Alisson to make those to make those um, mistakes 100% yeah they've pressed in the right areas and they've, and, they've, and they've gone at Liverpool where they know they're going to be weak but the problem is as exactly as for me Cameron's bang on when I think it's a third one the ball goes to Alisson he needs to use his brain he needs to think right I can't put the ball I can't risk a pass where three or four city players have pressed into I've got to open the pitch up or just play it long get rid of it mm. But he doesn't. He just thinks, I've got to play it short. The manager says, got, got to play it short. And he puts it right back into a ridiculous area of the pitch, which is Man City's attacking final third. It's got four players in it. It's, it's, it's mm. brainless. Yeah, especially as well, something that we haven't mentioned is that with the third one, is that he'd just done it a few minutes ago with <laughs> yeah. the second one. He'd just done something exact, very similar. You'd, the thing that would be going through my mind would be then just don't make a mistake. Like, just do, just do what... If you need to receive the ball, then yet do it, but then don't make a mistake. If you need to make a save, make the save, mm-hmm. but don't do anything too fancy with it. And that goes, like I say, for anything, making a save, going, coming for a corner. Don't take a risk at that point because you don't want to throw yourself completely under the bus. If you, you concede one in, in a 2-1 defeat, then you go, oh, well, or if you make one mistake, sorry, in a 2-1 defeat, and you go, well, yeah, we should have had a point if I'd not messed that up. But then at three, but then you go to 3-1, then you go to 4-1. It doesn't make you feel any better, I tell you that, conceding a goal after you've made a mistake, whether it's your fault or not. Never mind it being Alisson's fault for the third one as well. So, yeah, the third one, I think, is inexcusable. The second one, like I say, you can, it does happen. You know, I used to not have that much respect for Manuel Neuer and what he 
did for so well it still does for so long because of how he used to just irrationally run out to the halfway line get taken on and the players would would have a easy pass into the back of the net but the certainly for the amount of times that happens the amount of times he gets it right is ridiculous and i think we have to say that for allison that yeah okay he's made two you know really bad errors in a game which has cost cost liverpool the title chances really but it's his first two big mistakes that I can remember. If you look at the goalkeepers that Liverpool had in the past few years, how many mistakes have they made that have been maybe not similar, but that have cost Liverpool points, you know, and Alisson's won him a title, arguably. So I think you have to give a still keep the respect on Alisson, but this this yeah, the third goal is inexcusable, really. I can't understand that. Okay, so I've got two questions. Uh, for you to answer and I'm just going to if you, if you don't know can you give me your best guess so the last time Liverpool lost three in a row in the league Never. at Anfield yeah so so 1963 and the last time City scored four goals in a competitive fixture at Anfield oh. Ooh. 1900 later 19 I'm going to say 1924 1963. It does take a lot. I mean, I know he's got, like we've mentioned before, he has got the squad to win the league. That squad should be every season challenging for the for the league. But they were they were a bit down in the dumps. I know they've only lost two games this season, but they weren't playing well at the start of the season. We covered this on the on the podcast. But the way they've went, I think it's, is it twelve in a row they've won. Now um, that's just that's phenomenal at this at this level, and to, to to see off some of the teams that they have seen off is ridiculous. I mean the way. They're doing it as well without a recognised striker. That's that's unheard of. That, that, that is crazy to me. What what, he, what he's doing? I think England, like all of English fans, have got to thank him a bit as well. He's given the English talent that we have a free roam, and and it, it sometimes it gets coached out of them, and it's really disappointing because you don't get often players like Grealish, Madison, Mount, Foden. Sterling having this free reign over what they want to do on the pitch, and it's so key because that's at the end of the day. If you think about these special players in, in, in world football, the best players you can ever think of, they were unorthodox, they didn't do what, with all due respect to James Milner, what James Milner does. He's programmed to do the simple things, and he does it so well. And I have full respect for James Milner, I really do. He does his job, but the match winners are often the players who are unorthodox, and Man City have got them in abundance now. And, and John Stone starting off from the back is absolutely outstanding now. We covered this recently, I know that. But that, that man at the minute, Phil Foden, it, for me, he's got to be the first name on the team sheet for England. He is ridiculously good and playing with just that much confidence that he's unstoppable right now. I, I find it scary that he's only 20 as well. Yeah. I mean, he's literally younger than us and he's doing them sort of things. Like, is, is he a father of two you... as well? He goes up. I think, he's yeah, I think he goes up to his two kids after, puts them to bed, a 10 year old. <laughs> He's got he's got a hell of a life in that. <laughs> what a life he's got. I'm not Do you j- think it's a coincidence that when 
Pep Guardiola managed in Spain that the national side won the World Cup a few years later, similarly in Germany. Not at all, because it's played the exact same way that he's playing right now, without a striker as well. And that's how they won the, the World Cup and the Euros. And Torres won in the Euros. Well, yeah. False nine, false nine. False nine, exactly. False nine. Play the trick was... Tr- 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 2010 World Cup though they, they played the final in a false now formation though didn't they for me I just I just don't know whether I mean we've said before and, and I, I I do agree entirely with you for on a, for a change Dan and I think we do <laughs> have a lot of credit and that's coming from me someone who's doubting him a little bit and a bit, a bit of a, a bit of a sceptic and so just the sort of stubbornness in me just thinking well we've seen him try these bizarre tactical tweaks here and there that have just been too tactical been, there's been no need for them and they've not worked. Is this not playing a recognised striker when you've got Aguero and Jesus? Is it one of them that's happened to work or is it genuine genius? I think it's genius because if you look at the way they play now, they press as a whole team together. When they, when, don't get me wrong, when they have Aguero back, he will play because that's just, he's Aguero and he, he, he can play that false nine role to be fair when he floats about as well. Mm-hmm. I think that the way they press though, like, I know we've mentioned Alisson's mistakes a lot, but and, and but the way they pressed for that, they had about six players up front, and that's that's where the problems come from. That's Liverpool's fault, of course, but Man City's pressing was brilliant, and that's how they're getting goals this season. They are pushing teams as far back as they possibly can. I think that Pep Guardiola yesterday was quite arrogant in the way that he lined up that Man City team in a way that said we're going to Liverpool, we're going to Anfield, we're going to play them on their own patch, we're going to play the same system as them with the false nine and get our wingers up high and we're going to beat them at it he even made Raheem Sterling captain I think he was exceptionally arrogant in the way that Man City lined up at Anfield but in a way that said yeah we're better than you and we know it and we're going to show it and therefore, City fans will love him for that and Liverpool fans will hate him for it. But I think that he got his tactics spot on yesterday in a way that Man City are saying, yeah, we're the champions now this season. The thing is with them as well, I don't even think they're having to break sweat in most games. I didn't, I didn't actually think they were that good in the first half. I thought, I, I, I don't think it was a very good first half. And then the individual players shone in the second half. I think in most games that they've won and played this season, they haven't even broke sweat. And I, I think there's definitely a lot a lot more still to come from from Man City. Shortly after recording last week's transfer special podcast, the National League announced they had asked clubs to vote on how they wanted the season to end. There are four votes in total to determine whether National League clubs want to continue the season or null and void the 2020-21 campaign. I'm going to try and explain it to you. So strap in, because this might get very, very complicated quite quickly. So resolution one decides whether National League and National League North and South divisions split so that each division and each step carry on or stop playing football, not as a collective individual. This 75% to pass with National League's clubs having one vote each and National League North and South clubs having four votes for the entire league, not one vote each like in the step above. Already that doesn't seem quite fair, does it? So resolutions two and three come into place if resolution one is passed. So the National League and National League North and South will determine their own destinies rather than all coming under that one umbrella of the entire National League. So resolution two is for the National League, resolution three is for the North and South, and if passed, they will null and void the season. These resolutions need 50% to pass with one vote per club, regardless of step. 
Finally, resolution four is if is if the first one doesn't pass, i.e. the National League and National League North and South will be decided together, not under the same umbrella, sorry. And this passes, the season will be null and void for all National League teams. This needs 50% to pass. And like the resolution one, one vote per club in the National League and four votes per league in the National League North and National League South. Now, I know that will definitely all make total sense. Be fair, Sam. You've explained that better than anybody I've seen, like particularly from the National League themselves. That like generally your communication in the last minute has been better than National League communication for probably the last ten years. To be honest. <laughs> I mean, from me and Adam are quite involved in this. Adam being a Notts County fan in the National League and also involved in spending more, likewise with myself. How do you three see it? Looking in on a situation that you're not really involved in. Sad. I think it, 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 it's quite quite sad the way that teams and at the end of their lives are being trapped because a lot of, a lot of people are very very invested in the national league. Um, me, me personally, obviously, I'm not as invested, but still looking in, it, it feels like quite upsetting that you've got players who would possibly have to go and get other jobs. The, the thing in the back of the minds now, where am I? What am I going to do? What's what's happening with my? Because at the end of the day, they're not rich. These players, you've got to understand that. Like National League North and South, they they they're not rich. They they are probably on like an average wage. So they could they could be thinking long term. Like, is this actually like a career for me still? What what happens now? Then you've got managers, and they're thinking, right? I've got to motivate these players for the next game. When I don't even know if the next game is going to happen every week. Then you've got fans who are just like completely missing out well could completely miss out on their their teams playing football and like it's just it's really difficult to sort of comprehend what is going on because I think a lot of people assume like oh, it's footballers they'll all be fine do you know what I mean it, it, that they're not the worst off in this pandemic and don't get me wrong, they're not the worst off but it's still harmful yeah a lot of these are part-time players as well don't forget so they've got other jobs alongside mm. and Right from the start, when the season kicked off back in October, we were told by the daily briefings, by people in the EFL and the Premier League, that players would be tested twice a week. Well, that's not happened once for teams in the National League. And so you've got players who are going into jobs as teaching, nurses potentially, other part-time jobs, and then coming into football and mixing with players from all over the country on a weekend and on a Tuesday night, potentially on a Thursday night if the season resumes, they might be playing three times a week from now until May, which sounds astonishing, doesn't it? Um, So you've got these players that are playing part-time football as well as having part-time jobs and still not being tested. I mean, surely that should be the number one priority is the health concerns of these players, regardless of actually playing football. Is there still no testing protocol in place for if the the league does continue it starts next Monday, <laughs> which can you believe it? The yeah. National League come out and said, yeah, go on then. We'll start twice a week mandatory testing for free and, and we'll pay for it from the 15th of February. Yeah. And why is it not being in place since the start of the season if they can do it now? If they can afford to do it now, they could have afforded to do it at the start of the season. I think the only, the only club that I've been really following is Chesterfield. And even that's been sporadically, but I saw the... might have been today, actually. I think it was, I think it was yesterday that, that they'd had to call off their next three fixtures because of because of COVID-19 and you think well that 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 means that a lot of their squad must have had it and I can't imagine 
as you say, without mandatory te- mandatory che- Ooh, I can't speak <laughs> mandatory testing. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine without, without mandatory. Che- oh god, I said it again. Why did you? You, you nailed it. Why I did you keep saying? I keep saying a yeah, chair. I keep saying te- it. Of- you'll start saying Testerfield in a minute, won't you? <laughs> Testerfield. <laughs> mandatory testing. Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> but. But without Chesterfield doing mandatory testing, then uh, I know, I know, I'm, we're having that. that. That's the cut, Ollie. That's I'm just going to leave it all in. Oh, cheers, mate. But obviously, having to call off the next three games, chances are that there's probably a few players in the squad that have potentially played with it. And and then from the other side of that, we talk about finances. I know that, granted, Chesterfield have signed a few players under the, under the new management and ownership that have come in this season, but They've, I think they furloughed quite a, a few players and they've been active about it that just aren't playing for them. And obviously they're not going to be able to fire clubs because unfortunately not every every team has got a new ownership like Chesterfield have that maybe have a little bit of an influx in money. So, you know, it's, it's a really difficult time. Uh, I, what I'm really interested to see though is actually the outcome of, uh, of what... Of what teams vote I'm pretty sure I did see Chesterfield say which way they were gonna vote this was a few weeks ago I can't remember which way they said they definitely put it on Twitter um so yeah I'll be really interested to see whether whether they want to stay together obviously like the first stage of voting whether they want to the National League National League North National League South to to make a decision as one or if they want to split I imagine they probably want to split because I can see potentially with it being a lot of more part-time teams than National League North and South, probably wanting to potentially null and void. Whereas, obviously, teams chasing the football league and the National League might want to might want to continue and and play on. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe, maybe it's the other way around. I don't, I don't know, but I imagine that's the way that it will go. All right. Okay. So if if you two, obviously Adam and Sam, you're the most invested in it, the most involved in it, obviously work in it. What do you want to happen, truthfully? Like, a, a definitive answer? Because it's easy. I know it, it, sounds, it might sound harsh, but it's easy enough criticising them, but people, yeah. people often criticise without actually having an answer, do yeah. they? So what, what, what is the actual answer here? What, what do you want? True, the truth is, that I actually don't know anymore, which is, which is the worst <laughs> part. Because it's just... Honestly, if I, to, <laughs> if I were to sit here and try and explain every decision that's been made, I would genuinely be here until tomorrow. There's so many ways of looking mm. at it, so many twists and turns along the way. Me, me personally, this is the, this is my job, and this is my only job at the minute. So I I want it to continue, but I've got no insight into the accounts of the clubs at all these levels of finances, and I'm in no position at all to say that these clubs should apply, and if they can't afford to, they should get loans and all that. What I find the most interesting is that the National League suspension, which was suspended three weeks ago now, two and a half weeks ago to uh, allow funding to be found. Uh, funding wasn't found. And then we got to the cutoff, which was last Friday. So they said, right, so that means that Gareth Hathaway should be, should be played now. And half of them just said, well, <laughs> well we're not doing that. <laughs> Some of the South did play. The FA Trophy was played as well to make it even more exciting to have more angles to look at. Some of the teams played in the FA Trophy. Uh, and there was one National League North game as well. Chorley went to, went to Brackley. Now, as someone associated with Spennymore, Spennymore should be, should be playing, scheduled to play away at Chorley tomorrow. Now, we've had no confirmation from either side that that game definitely isn't happening. But Chorley will probably want it to, and Spennymore said it won't. We are sat here 24 hours from kickoff, nearly, thinking, 
well, are we going to Chorley or are we not going to Chorley? I would imagine we're not, but I actually don't know. And that's, that's why I don't know what I want to happen because there's so much uncertainty. What I think we can say is I think we've think as of today, as of time recording, just there's been enough votes cast in the, from the National League South that have voted against Resolution 1 and also against Resolution 4. So that means that there's going to be four votes coming in to the combined vote for the decision to be made as one and for the season to carry on, which is very interesting. That's coming from the South, which is a sixth tier side, a lot of where I think 20, I think 19 of 21 are part time in that division. And the majority, which is very close, has said, let's let's play on. The problem is that in terms of carrying on, a lot of the teams at fifth, le- fifth tier level, National League level, have voted. I think all the ones that have voted so far, which is just over half, have voted for Resolution 1 for each tier to make their st- to make their choice separately. So what's really interesting now is if three, I think I think we need three National League sides to vote against, sorry, to vote, yeah, to vote against Resolution 1. And at that point, the decision is made a hot, as, as a whole and the season will probably continue. So, be, so, so National League North clubs have got it in that it's got, it's got, you know, they're in the hands of, a handful of National League clubs, which is where the voting's all wrong. But what is really, really interesting for me is that the National League North decision is, I don't think it's quite confirmed yet, but is almost definitely going to be to um, make steps decide on their own and to vote to null and void. And as we know, in the South, the decision has been made to not null and void. Now, the North and the South don't get to make their own decisions as North and South. It is made as a level. So fifth tier get their own decision if Resolution 1 passes, and sixth tier, get their own solution if, if Resolution 1 passes. What that means is that we're going to have four votes for null and voiding and four votes against null and voiding coming from the sixth tier, which means it'll come down to individual votes, of which, as right now, is pretty much 50-50, play on or not play on. So it's going to be so, so close either way as to whether we play on or not. And the majority of National League North sides don't want to play on, but they're in the hands of the National League. And now, because of today's votes, they're in the hands of National League South teams as well. So it's all just completely up in the air. And I've given you such a long answer that I hope's proven to you why I don't know what I want to happen, because no one knows what they want to happen. I want the National League to fulfil one of the promises they made, which was, if there are no fans within the ground, you will have enough funding to continue this season. And that lasted up until December which was 13 games, which isn't even half the way through a season. And then on the, then onwards they went, yeah, about that. We're going to give you loans instead of grants, which you're going to have to pay with interest. And even though you're fan-owned clubs and can't afford to, that's the only way of the season continuing. And therefore, that's not enough, is it? If you've promised that you will have enough money to pay players without fans, then that's what you should do. And that's entirely what they've not done. And therefore, I want one promise from the National League to be fulfilled. And that hasn't happened. And therefore, why should we do what they tell us to? If from a spending more perspective, if we've got the health of our players first, and we're also saying that the money that you're now promising, that could be better spent within a global pandemic. That could be better spent on computers or something within the health service that would actually benefit the lives of more people than a football match, which, let's be honest, football, we all think is massively important, but for the majority of the country, that's not at the forefront of people's mind in a global pandemic. Therefore, that money can be better spent from a spending move perspective. I just think that they've not had the safety of the players at the forefront of the mind. That's not been 
of paramount and therefore why should we then do what the national league want to do when they finally seem to have some sort of grasp on the situation and it's taken until january now february sorry it's taken until now february february for them to get a grip of the situation the season's meant to finish in may and when we've only played 13 games i should say one i should say one more thing on this because i've spoken a hell of a lot and i Apologise for that. But uh, if anybody wants to know more about it, I, I can't recommend enough listening to an interview that the Southport manager made after their game in the FA Trophy at home to Torquay on Saturday. He speaks about 10, 12 minutes, but it's it's just so honest. And I mean, uh, the thing that stood out in my head was that um, at, back in October time, when it was said about stringent testing is allowing elite sport to continue, National League level, that there's never been mandatory testing. I think the only club in the entire National League to test regularly out of their own pockets is Notts County. Um, and that's been to their own downfall, if anything. But he said, well, why aren't we testing? And the exact quote he got from the National League board was, we don't test. I think that says everything that there is wrong with the National League. Okay, lads. So for this week's feature, I've got quite a simple question that I want you to answer. Um, if you could, or in Adam's case, had to go to one of these derby matches, which would you choose and why? And I've got a list of five that I'd like you to pick from. So Inter Milan versus AC Milan, Boca Juniors versus River Plate, Real Madrid versus Barcelona, Rangers v Celtic, or Dortmund versus Bayern Munich. I've said had to because I don't think, Adam, you'll want to go to any of those <laughs> matches. Am I wrong? No, I mean, where's where's the uh, where's the Derbyshire derby, for example, or you know, where's the where's proper football at? Yeah. I'm I'm sure you'll McGregor at Celtic, won't you? If you had, to, should I read them through one again so that you can remember that? So it is Inter versus AC Milan, Boca Juniors against River Plate, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Rangers v Celtic, and Dortmund against Bayern Munich. If you could go to one of those derby matches, which would you choose and why? I'll kick things off if you want. Um, I'd go to the one where I won't get killed. So probably <laughs> Real Madrid, Barcelona. Um, I've, I've just always liked, uh, well, saying that in recent years, it's not been as, uh, as much, as, there hasn't been as many fireworks. But in the past, you've got some absolutely sensational high scoring games. There's always a bit of drama normally, other than, like I said, the last few seasons. But just if I got to go within the next couple of years, it just gets to see Messi against Real Madrid one more time. And that would be just the highlight of probably my football supporting career, I guess, if you can call it a career. But um, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the one for me in El Clasico. Cam, what would you pick? It's a good question, really. Um, I, I'm, I was wanting to say one of the, one of the warmer climate countries just cold. because it'd be because it'd be a nice holiday really yeah. um but i'm gonna i'm gonna say uh, the glasgow derby um simply because i think i think i think that's the best going to be the best atmosphere I, obviously i've not been to any of those so I, so I can't say for certain but from what i've seen on telly i think i think that would definitely be the best atmosphere to experience uh i've I have seen Rangers fans live before they came and played Wednesday in a friendly. And I think there was about 22, 23,000 people there for a friendly, which is quite quite a lot really for what we normally get. And 10,000 of those are Rangers fans. And they completely packed out the North Stand, which is the one of the longer side um, stands at Hillsborough. And it was ridiculous. They would not stop, you know, chanting and bouncing. 
And to be fair, it probably helped that they, they won 2 0. <laughs> but it was ridiculous for a friend for a friendly as well. It was unbelievable. I, I I've never felt myself like it before. It, you know, it, it was like it was like being at Wembley for the start of the, the playoff final, which you know Ollie could probably justify as well. You know that it, it was like it was like that kind of atmosphere. And I'm, but but that's what Rangers and I imagine Celtic fans are like though. Is that it's like every game is like a playoff final to them, whether they're playing St Mirren away or a friendly against Sheffield Wednesday. Or it's a, a Scottish League Cup final, or Scottish, uh, or a deciding Scottish Premiership game against Celtic. You know, every game is a massive game for even one of those teams. You know, and and the fans obviously. And I think I think that would just be the the best atmosphere. Maybe not the best game. Definitely not the best in terms of quality on the pitch. But you might see a few goals as well. Yeah, I'd probably go with the old firm as well. Just for the just for the backstory behind the game. Really, you got these political, social, religious divisions it's not just the football this is literally in some cases biggest day of the year for a lot of for a lot of the people who support these clubs and I was going to say Boca Juniors River Plate mm. just for the atmosphere but I've never been asked to watch it before I couldn't even tell you what the, the score from any of them games was so I think along with the same reasons that Cam said I'd go with the old firm. Adam finally if you had to go to one of these games? Uh Well, well I was on a school trip to London in 2013 which was, it was, we went Wednesday to Friday on the Saturday with Champions League final, which in that year was Bayern Dortmund. Um, and there was a big Dortmund fan bus parked near Marble Arch, which we were walking down, which I think was near Oxford Street. I think we walked down, walked down Oxford Street and then we saw this big Dortmund bus and they were bringing everybody over. It didn't, didn't, didn't matter if, you were, if you'd come from Germany or if you were like me and somewhere from England, it's like, come and, come, and, come and join our parade almost. And I got given a Dortmund hats and a and a and a, and a couple of uh, little plastic flags but um but 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 there was Bayern fans around as well and they weren't like they weren't, they weren't exactly dragging them in and saying join our big Dortmund party but but it was all friendly <laughs> and it was all you know it was all it was all really really well natured and I think those sorts of games you don't really go and hope it's a good game because it could finish nil nil and you'd probably enjoy it particularly the atmosphere is probably of we well, probably want to enjoy Boca and um you know for for, for for reasons that you're probably trying to not die, but um, the, the but the atmosphere of those games is probably the most important thing. And I think that Dortmund Bayern is 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 uh, yes, it's fierce, but it's also it's also quite quite well well natured. I think I'd I'd, I'd describe it as and um, and obviously I've got a I've got a bit of pass with the Dortmund fans, so I'll probably go for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd probably go for. Inter Milan versus AC Milan, mainly because I want to go to a game at the San Siro before it's demolished. And I think that's in a couple of years' time. Is it 2024 mm. or 2025? The knocking down the stadium. And I just think that would be the game to go and see. If you go into the San Siro to watch a game, that's the game to go and see, isn't it? Regardless of who's at home and who's away. Two historic teams sharing one magnificent stadium. If you're going to go to a game at the San Siro, I think it's got to be that one. So that's the one that I'd pick. But yeah, all Good answers, I think. I don't think I'd single out anyone for saying that's a poor choice. OK, so what have we learned this week? We've learned that Adam doesn't think the National League are up to standard. We've learned that Ollie doesn't like Mike Dean's performances as a referee. And we've also learned, most importantly, that Cam should audition as a match of the day pundit. Thanks for listening to Rematch this week. We hope you've enjoyed. Follow us on our socials at Rematch Podcast on Twitter. And we'll see you all next week at 6pm. 